All right, let's turn our Bible, shall we, in the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 5. In a day and an age where there weren't any seminaries or Bible colleges, how in the world do you raise up pastors for all of these churches that Paul was establishing all over the place? He couldn't be in, in all places at the same time. Uh, God was faithful in raising up people for him like young Timothy and Titus, young pastors that did not learn to be pastors by going to Bible college or seminary. Can I tell you this? No pastor can be made into that shepherd after God's own heart by any seminary or Bible college. It is God who makes shepherds. Bible colleges and seminaries make scholars. Don't confuse the two. In a day and age today where we exalt, we deify uh, education, especially higher education, understand this, that from the Bible's perspective, Genesis to Revelation, only God can make pastors. Man can't. Schools can't. Despite the fact, and I, there's nothing wrong with Bible college or seminary. If God gives you the finances to get there, uh, that's great. But quite frankly, I think spending time in God's Word Communing with His Holy Spirit, fellowshipping with the saints, praising His holy name is preparation for the ministry. We're all called to ministry. You want to know Greek or Hebrew? Great. Stop by the office sometime. Ask me some questions. I'll fill you in on the basics. But you don't need to spend your money going to Bible college. What you do need to be is filled with His Holy Spirit. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's as true now as ever. Paul went to what seminary? None. Peter went to what seminary or Bible college? He didn't go to one. In other words, in a lot of our churches today, none of the biblical characters would be invited to speak. Well, you don't have enough education. You didn't go to the right school. You don't have enough training. I'm sorry, Jesus, you're a what? You're a carpenter? What kind of training for seminary is that? We need to rethink church today. Some things are not taught. They're caught. By example, that's how we raised our kids, isn't it? <laughs> they will seldom do what you say. They will always do what you do. <laughs> and that is parenthood in a nutshell. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul continues his instruction to this young man because there weren't any how to be a pastor 101 books available in the first century. They were completely dependent upon the risen Lord. They were completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God leading and guiding and, and directing. Paul can't even pick up a phone and talk to Timothy. He's up in northern Greece. Timothy is down in Ephesus, uh, west-central Turkey today, uh, near the coast. And so they're swapping letters back and forth where he's trying to encourage this young man, here's how to do church. It doesn't contain everything you need to know to do church, but it equips this young man and us with some knowledge of what's important to God in the ministry. Because all of us are called to ministry, all of us qualify to be hearing and receiving these pastoral epistles and what they have to say to each one of us. And Paul has covered a wide breadth of subjects so far. In chapter 1, he had warned against false teachers. Certainly a pastor needs to have his his ears open to what's going on, what's being taught. He then in chapter 2 gave instructions on public 
worship, then qualifications for church officers in chapter 3, how to deal with those false teachers in chapter 4. Now in chapter 5, he outlines, Timothy, this is how you should deal with specific groups within the church. More advice on pastoring, relationships in the church. So with that said, in chapter 5 or in verse 1, he says, you know, when you have to, as a pastor, rebuke an older man, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your brother. Treat younger women, excuse me, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You want to highlight absolute purity. Purity. That should govern all relationships within the church. Absolute purity. Church is not a place where singles meet potential spouses. Church is a place where people seek God. That's the purpose. It's not a meat market. It's not an alternative dating site. I hate it when people carnally come up and say, well, we're going to go to a bigger church with a bigger singles group. Hmm. You read in the Old Testament, God rounded up wives for some of the patriarchs from thousands of miles away when nobody lived anywhere near them. But God already had a plan for them. People today think wrongly. Is God able? Absolutely. Now, what he says there in verse 1 is there's a right way and a wrong way of calling a person's attention to their failings. But you already knew that. If you do the wrong way and you correct people in the flesh... It'll always make a person defensive, it'll cause strife, it'll cause resentment and animosity. Be careful. We have to be careful, all of us, that we don't build walls and barriers in the way that we seek to correct somebody else. Didn't Jesus say, first pull the speck out of your own eye before you think that somebody else has a bigger problem than you? That's a paraphrase, but Jesus said, look within before you look without. Be your own critic before you start criticizing others. Pull the, pull the speck out of somebody else's eye. That is difficult to do if you have an Oregon log jam in your own. In dealing with younger men, Paul said, treat them like a brother. Treat older men like fathers. How, do you, how should you biblically treat your father? With respect, with humility. When, when he says, do not rebuke an older man, that word rebuke, I looked it up, and it is a harsh word. You know what it literally means? It means to take a meat mallet and pound the steak flat. Boy, that, so don't, Paul says, don't do that. Don't, do that. don't pound somebody. I just want to pound him. Yeah, is that how you want God to treat you? Well, of course not. So, but that word, yeah, it's a, it is the perfect picture of pounding something flat. Mm, don't do that. It's what you do to a cheap cut of meat. It is not what you do to older men within the church. We're all imperfect. Amen. Be gracious. That's all Paul is saying. Be gracious. Don't harshly or disrespectfully or, God forbid, physically be abusive with an older man who needs correction in the body. It disturbs me greatly over the years that we're, from time to time you see on TV elder abuse in a nursing home. Those poor defenseless, helpless people, you know, bullied about by people that are supposed to be their caregivers. He says, but exhort him. There's a fascinating word in that word, exhort. You might get a different picture. It is where we get the word paraclete, which is a Greek reference to the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, exhort is to come alongside of somebody gently in a godly fashion to come alongside of them, to call them out, to invite them, invoke them, implore them, beseech them, entreat. In other words, it's done respectfully. Exhort them. Parakaleo literally means to come alongside of. doesn't mean to get all in your face or like you're spiritually superior. You're not. Nobody is. But be gentle when you do this. Come alongside of them. Hey, brother, can I help you with this? I see you got your, your spirit to be struggling here. And when he talks about rebuking an older man, who's an older man? Well, that's a pretty relative term. Anybody older than you? What is a younger man? Anybody younger than you? You know, I think this is wise words for a young minister to know how to conduct himself with old men and with his peers in church, the, the younger men. Fellowship with the young guys, that's great, but whatever you do, don't commit folly with them. What, what he says here reminds me of the passage in Galatians 5.23, where gentleness and self-control are a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There should be gentleness and self-control when the pastor has to rebuke somebody or exhort somebody. In fact, it should govern all of our relationships here, shouldn't it? There should be a gentleness in our conversation. There should be a godliness. There should be respect. It's not found in the world anymore. That grieves me greatly. But Paul, in speaking to a, a young pastor who has the responsibility to rebuke and exhort, understand he's speaking to the pastor. He's not speaking to the general congregation. You don't have to take it upon yourself to rebuke and exhort everybody in the room. Maybe you came to church this morning going, I, I wonder who God is going to show me I need to correct today. First stop should be in the bathroom, look in the mirror. That's the first person. That's the first person. Correcting and, and rebuking, that, unless you, you wear the title pastor and have been called to that office in this church, you should not take that upon yourself. In fact, your role, according to Galatians 6, 1, is if you see a brother who has stumbled and fallen into sin, you who are godly should gently come alongside of him, but be careful lest you too be tempted. Okay, there's a place for that, but this is different. They're rebuking, pounding somebody, uh, pounding their flesh with a meat mallet, you know, uh, I don't want to do that. I certainly don't want you to do that either, but don't take upon yourself church discipline. That's the leadership's responsibility. That's why we've got elders in the church and, and, and shepherds and pastors. You don't have to bear that burden. You know, can I tell you, pray about a situation. If you see a brother or sister, read Galatians 5. Seek the Lord in prayer. Can I come alongside of them? Can I help them? You know, can I come alongside of that brother or sister? I know that's a Christian. I, I say, man, I, I noticed you were really dropping a lot of F-bombs today at work. You know, that's probably not the best way to advance our purposes in Christ. You know? Or, or some Christian says, oh, I went and watched this, this show and there was all sorts of language and cussing and sex and violence and bloodletting. And you might gently come alongside them as the Lord prompts you and say, do you really want to expose yourself, the temple of the Holy Spirit, to such things? Simple question. I don't want to. I'm nobody's judge, but I know this, that there are things that build up a, the Christian spirit within him, and there are things that don't. 
Paul is simply saying, stick with the things that build up and encourage and edify. So regarding what you watch on TV or the language that comes out of your mouth or whatever else, if it doesn't build you up in your faith, you should reassess whether it should be a part of your life or not. Is it just useless entertainment? Is it worldly distraction? Is it sexual pursuit? Is it, does it feed the flesh instead of the spirit? Avoid those things, whether it's on TV or movie theaters or the computer or whatever other media that, that you take a look at. When it's necessary for a pastor to rebuke and exhort, it should be done in the gentleness of the Holy Spirit. Now, as he speaks to Timothy here in verse 2, Timothy was a young man and apparently uh, unmarried. In fact, Paul will later tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, flee youthful lusts. Uh, a young, good-looking man has a lot more temptations than an older guy like, like Paul, so he's telling him, you treat younger men as brothers, but verse 2, treat older women as mothers. How would you treat your mother? With respect. She's the matriarch. You exalt her and lift her up and think highly about her. That's how you should treat older women within the church. And younger women, not as lust objects, not as potential dating people. Oh, you know, I didn't sign on to a social dating website, so I'll come to church. It's not a meat market. If you're coming to church for, for the reason of finding a spouse instead of finding God, you came for the wrong reason. Come to find God. And to the extent that you come seeking God is the extent that you will find Him when you walk out of the church. It is seldom due to the pastor's rhetorical ability as to whether you feel that you got something out of the morning sermon or not. It really has more to do with the openness of your heart, less with the pastor. This is the place where you meet God. You meet God in my mind's eye during our times of praise and worship. I see God with a celestial-sized can opener just peeling back the roof of the church and looking down and smiling on us. I see every door swung wide open to invite the Lord Jesus to come in this place. That, to me, is the essence of praise and worship. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. That's why I come. I want to meet Him because He's here. How do you know he's here, Pastor Jim? Jesus promised us, where two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I'll be in the midst of you. It doesn't matter if I feel like it. This is based on the promise of Jesus Christ, not my feelings. My feelings, have you noticed your feelings and mine? They are flippant. Man, they come and go like the spring rains in Colorado. You never know what to expect. Could be rain, snow, sleet, hail, or 90 degrees, all in the next 10 minutes. This is Colorado. You never know what to expect. It always catches you off guard. But I don't want these things any more than life itself to upset my faith. I want that to be bedrock. And I, every time I open up the Word of God, His Holy Spirit is speaking to me. Every time I come to church, I'm here for the Lord. Fellowship with you, it's wonderful. But that to me is the icing on the cake not the cake itself. Come to church to meet with God. And if you seek Him, didn't He promise through Jeremiah, if you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. That has nothing whatsoever to do with the pastor behind the pulpit. Nothing. I cannot help it. I cannot hinder that. That's strictly between you and God. But I want you to do more when you come to church than just occupy seat space and drink coffee. I want you to come with the purpose in mind. I want to be more like Jesus. 
I want to seek God with all of my heart. I want to surrender everything. I want Him to wash and cleanse and, and fill me once again. That's why I come to church, to be built up, to be encouraged, because then I'm better prepared to minister when I walk out of the building. That's when the mission field begins, isn't it? As soon as you hit the driveway, that's where real life hits you once again right in the face. But you want to tackle that challenge by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So to the unmarried, the goal of the church is not finding mate, it's finding Christ. But we tend in our churches these days to accommodate the flesh. <sighs> we shouldn't. And you have to be very careful of that. I remember uh, not so long ago, uh, there was a church that I was a part of. I wasn't in leadership or anything like that, but uh, they decided that they would have a homosexual recovery group. And so they started dividing up people in their church according to their sins. And so what you needed was, here's the, the, the skateboarders over here, and here's the skinheads, and here's the tattooed guys that ride surfboards. And, and they started parsing everybody up according to their sin until they found out that within the homosexual recovery group, they started hitting on each other, and homosexual sin was running rampant throughout the church. It is really stupid to, for any church to start parsing us up that creates division and parsing us up by our sins. Let's put all of the single group over here so they, and hope that they don't lust after each other. Is that really the best way to minister holistically to that group? But we tend to segregate people like that. Like, we'll put all the lepers over here. What, 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 how does that contribute to us being a body, a family? We're a family. So parsing, let's, put the, let's, let's just parse it all out over there. I think you have to be very careful of doing that. I understand that there are community likes involved there. That Okay. But I haven't seen that it's entirely healthy 100% of the time to parse up the body of Christ. I've been a part of, of churches where the kids were in the sanctuary, a little noisier, but they grew up seeing this as family. There's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for having the singles in here and, and talking with the singles as well as to the married instead of shoving them off in some corner saying, let's hope that it doesn't turn into a dating service. Something to be said for us getting together. Koinonia means having all things together. You would get all the teens out there and teens have a unique set of problems that sometimes is best addressed one-on-one -on -one, and sometimes they just need the family of God to love them. That's all. Just love them. But bring them in. Don't exclude them. Don't push them outside. We, we are family. It's time we acted like it. Verse 3, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. I love verses 3 and 4 because this was written in a day and age where they didn't have social welfare programs. They didn't have social security. If there was a widow out there, if she didn't have kids, she was usually reduced to begging on street corners for for any kind of a handout. 
And, and Paul is encouraging Timothy that it is the church's responsibility to look after these widows. But if they have children and grandchildren, those children and grandchildren should first of all practice their faith by taking care of their moms and dads and grandparents. That, that was God's way long before nursing homes were ever invented. The responsibility of taking care of one another fell to the family. If there was no family, then the church would step in. Give proper recognition means taking care of and giving of material and financial support. In a time where widows were really kind of victimized by that Roman society of that day, but they were vulnerable people. They had no pensions, no government assistance, no life or health insurance. Those things weren't simply available to widows in that day and age. But you take care of the widows that have a legitimate need. But then he's going to outline for us some qualifications. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, look out for the godly widows that are really seeking out for God. It reminds me of the widow like Anna in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 2 and verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, she was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never remarried. She never left the temple but worshipped there night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is at, at Jesus as he's brought for dedication to the temple as a youth. God had in the Old Testament commanded, don't take advantage of a widow or an orphan. That's just common sense. In Deuteronomy, he said that he de himself defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. God's plan for we're taking care of the younger widows was outlined in Deuteronomy 24. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. There, there was no welfare, government assistance program, Social Security back then. It reminds me back in the 60s and 70s here in Colorado Springs off of 21st Street, we used to have a county farm, a county farm. Any of you remember that from days gone by? Yeah, you've been, Ed's been here that long. You're probably the only person in the room that's been here as long as me. They used to have the county farm over there. And if you were a homeless person, if you were in need, if you were destitute, you could go out there and help plant and fertilize and weed and take home some groceries. And I thought, well, that's fantastic. Now, Paul would later, letter say, later say in one of his letters, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. In other words, the church is not bound to support lazy men. But the county farm put people like that who could work to work, and I thought that was marvelous. And the, the, the economic situation of Colorado Springs was much better in that day and age, and there was no homelessness in Colorado Springs. Isn't that amazing? I don't know that we've made a lot of progress now. Now we build homeless cities and homeless tents and park them in our schools and community parks. Maybe we should address some of the drug issues. Maybe we should reinstitute some community farms again. Maybe you've seen the signs, we'll work for food. I've asked them to come to church and sweep the parking lot a hundred times. No, no, can't do it. Why not? Well, it 
don't really have calluses on my hands. It might cause blisters. Oh, okay, so your sign isn't really true. You're not looking for work. You just want money. It would be more honest if you say, I just need to get drunk again. Could you throw me a quarter? Because that's what they're going to do with it, or drugs. And that's why giving handouts to homeless people does not help them spiritually. Their greatest need is Jesus Christ. I mean, everywhere I go today, hiring now, hiring, hiring. Oh, Burger King can't even open their dining room because they don't have enough staff to get out there and take care of the tables in the place. So every homeless person, I tell them, you know, Burger King is hiring. You can flip burgers at In-N-Out Burger starting at $20 an hour. You know what I first made when I first went to work? $1.75 an hour. The guy who was paying me then thought I was overpaid. I worked at a full-service gas station. You don't know what that is, so please let me explain that to you. That means when you pull up, you check their tires, the air pressure in their tires. You check their radiator. You check their oil. You wash their windshield. You check their automatic transmission fluid. You, you did everything but overhaul the differential in the thing at every single gas stop. And you pumped the gas for them. And you took the credit. And you ran it in. And you ran it out. All for $1.75 an hour. But I'll tell you what, nobody back then saw that as a as a career. It was a stepping stone. But today, somehow or another, people flipping burgers or, or pumping gas, or that's a career? No, it's just a stepping stone. It gets your foot in the door, gives you a little experience, but you work your way up the food chain. That's what used to be expected, but now people say, well, I, you know, I got a fine arts degree, you know, so I know all things Gucci, and I can't market the degree anywhere, but I expect the American taxpayer to pick up my $75,000 school loan. Maybe we shouldn't encourage worthless degrees. Maybe we should have sent them to welding school. Don't know. We could use a lot of good mechanics out there today, people in the oil fields. I mean, there are so many good jobs, but we've gotten off the track. God's program of was taking care of those who had a legitimate need. But the, the widows were to be, first of all, taken care of by their families because that was pleasing to God. Verse 5, but the widow who is really in need and left all alone, she has no family, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray like Anna at the temple that we just read about. And to continue to ask God for help, but the widow who lives for pleasure, sexual pleasure, is spiritually dead even while she lives. She has different priorities, so you don't put the younger widows on the list. Verse 7, give, these, give the people these instructions to so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith Ooh. and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, there's a variety of ways to do that, but let's back up to verse 7 here for just a little bit. Sexual purity in the church has always been under attack by Satan. In the church, the sex outside of marriage is commonplace, and it should not be. We've allowed the morals of society to invade the church and accepted the birth of babies out of wedlock as totally normal, and it should not be. 
It's called sexual immorality, and yet we've bitten off more and more of the world's values and, and turned our back more and more on God's values. Satan plays off the weakness of, of your flesh. Don't help him in his work. Stay spiritually strong. Stay in the Word of God, connected to Him, filled with His Holy Spirit, doing what is right. These things please God. Whether, whether single or married, I think it would behoove us all to make a commitment to stay as pure as we can in all of our relationships and focus on our relationship with Jesus Christ until He comes again. That should be our focus, isn't it? Everything else is pretty temporary. If we have been faithful in the small things, He'll make us a ruler over much. I want to I pass my tests. But verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, moms and dads, sisters and brothers, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever because love should characterize all that we do. Love should look out for my, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother. I don't encourage uh, their sin. I don't buy their drugs or any nonsense like that for them, but I help them with legitimate needs. I know when my father uh, was, was closing in on the end of his days, I begged him, begged him, begged him to, to come and live with me and Kathy. I said, Dad, I'll f I, I have already finished the whole downstairs for you in this little tri-level that we were living in. I said, you, you've got everything you need down there, Dad. You know, you, we'll fix all of your meals for you. And, and Dad was kind of old school, and he said, well, Jimmy, I used to change your diapers when you were pooping green, and I ain't going to live with my kids now. And there was some kind of pride attachment there that my, I didn't quite understand. I, and I said, after his last series of strokes, I said, Dad, the docs say you can't go home. You can't live by yourself. You can't take care of yourself anymore. Let me do that, Dad. Move in with me. It won't cost you a penny. I'll feed you, clothe you, love on you, take care of I'll take care of you. Don't go to a nursing home. They don't know you. They, won't, they don't care about you like your family does. Dad just couldn't, for whatever his reasons were, just couldn't deem himself uh, to live with his kids. So he, he chose a nursing home. Okay. Well, I have to honor his choice as best I can, but we should take care of him. I remember a long time ago, my mom uh, had shattered her ankle in a terrible car, car accident, and uh, she couldn't walk for six months. And so I said, well, this is easy, Mom. Why don't you move in with us? And Mom moved in with us when we were living up in the top end of security on Main Street. And we fed her. She couldn't get out of bed for like the first six or eight weeks. And, and so Kathy would bring her all her meals and just waiting on her hand and foot because my Bible says that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take care of each other. I would do the same thing for any of my brothers. I don't have any sisters. I don't know how you treat a sister, but this tells me here you, you treat the, the women in the church like they're your sisters, not as sex objects or lust objects. You look at them with dignity because they are worthy of it, and God commands it. But families have a responsibility to take care of each other because the option was to be a burden to the church financially. And most of the churches back then were far smaller than ours and did not have the resources. I mean, people today come to the church for all, well, well, pastor, you know, can you, can you make my rent 
this month and my utilities and maybe five or six, eight hundred dollars a month for groceries. Could you pay that for a couple of months for me? <laughs> wow. We'd have to take up a love offering every single Sunday above and beyond that which we already do. Small churches simply don't have the resources to do that financially. So we've got to see who's really in need and can we help them, you know? And so, and so we pray about every decision that comes our way. Lord, help us to do what we can. But uh, the resources, there's always 10 times more need than resources to go around in a, in a small church. Big churches, they got plenty of money. Huge amounts of money. They don't ever have to go through the things the small church does. But that requires us to be good stewards, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Verse 9, no widow may be put on the list of widows. There was an official list in the church. Unless she's over 60, she might be tempted to sexual immorality if she's younger than that. Has been faithful to her husband, literally a one-woman man. She's a faithful woman and is known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints. That You don't know what that means because we don't live in a town with dirt roads and we're not all wearing sockless sandals. But in that day and age, that was a, a slave's task. And, and the widow who was really in need and showed hospitality, she'd say, well, can I wash your feet when you come in? Because with the dusty roads, that was a real necessity, unless you're tracking dirt into everybody's house. So she was willing to do that, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. I like that. Devoting herself first and foremost to the Lord. Verse 11, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. In other words, it's easy to make a rash vow of celibacy to the Lord. Lord, my, my spouse just went home to be with you, so I'm never going to remarry again. It's, the Lord, it's just you and me. Well, if they're young enough, they may have problems fulfilling that vow later on. When their sensual desires get the best of them, it, it is simply the flesh. That's all it is. We all possess it either Either you master the flesh or it will master you. But I'm already telling you something as you already, you already know. So don't put the younger widows on the list. Verse 12, thus they bring judgment upon themselves because then they would break their vows that given to Christ because they're broken their first pledge. Verse 13, besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house and not only... Do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to? So I counsel younger women to marry, to have children, manage their homes, and to give their enemy no opportunity for slander. For some have, in fact, already turned away from Christ to follow Satan, to follow the flesh, to abide by the rules of the world instead of God. So through this whole section, he's talking to the young widows. Uh, he says, it, it's probably better for you guys to get married. That's fine. Go ahead and, and do that. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them uh, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Uh, I think that is the church's responsibility 
take care of those. We've had many of them come and go over the years, and they've been a delight to, to minister to. Verse 17, steps on the toes of the elders and servants within the, the church that are serving in an official capacity. The elders, verse 17, who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. I want you to notice, elders there is the word old guys. It, that's what we are. We are the elders that have, have some miles underneath the tread of our feet, but experience and wisdom to go along with it. And all of the elders in our church understand that our elders here in this church have collectively served 175 years in this church. That's wisdom that I want to tap into regularly. They know you. They've been here for a long time. They know what Calvary chapels are all about. They've been servants for a long time. And it says right here in verse 17, they, and they direct the affairs of the church. They are well worthy of double honor. More than just being an old guy in the church, they are elders in leadership in the church. And you should acknowledge that. Especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. What Paul just said is, among the elders of the church, some are just elders and others are teaching and preaching elders. Just because I'm an elder and I do the preaching, the bulk of it behind this pulpit, doesn't mean that all of my elders on the church board do. If they have the gift of teaching, we allow them to exercise that. But there are some that would rather have a poke in the eye with a sharp stick than to stand behind this pulpit on a Sunday morning. That's not their gift. So there are teaching and non-teaching elders. That's okay, but all of them direct the affairs of the church. Do you know the difference between preaching and teaching? Preaching is evangelistic, aimed at the saving of souls. Teaching is what you do with them after they're saved. You teach them the word of the Lord. I'm a pastor teacher by the will of the Lord. I'm not an especially gifted evangelist at all. But some... They have that gift of preaching, and some have the gift of teaching. All of them are engaged in service for the Lord. We elders, as it is. In fact, elders and overseer, pretty much synonymous terms, especially as Paul addresses Titus there in Titus chapter 1. He says, the reason I left you, Titus, in Crete was so that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders... In every town as I directed you, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. So elder and overseer, I'm the overseer of this church. I have oversight. I don't do everything, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I have oversight of everything. And here's why that's important. God will hold me accountable for everything that goes on in this church. Whether teaching in the ladies' groups back there, teaching the men's groups, the youth groups back there, different home fellowships, God has given me oversight of them all because I have responsibility for them all. I thank God for every single volunteer in this church. They carry on the, the bulk of the work that goes on here, whether it's janitorial or teaching or Sunday school, nursery, a thousand other areas. And I praise God in heaven for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't thank you enough, ever. There are some in the church, like myself, like 
Pastor Tracy, Pastor John Mark, Pastor Juan over the Spanish fellowship that, that derive a very, very modest uh, salary so that we can do this full-time instead of working 40, 60 hours a week outside the church and then try to teach you in, in the Lord's Word. I praise God for bivocational pastors, but understand how horrendously hard that is. I did that for the first three and a half years the church was in existence. I was working 50 to 60 hours a week as an aerospace engineer here in Colorado Springs and trying to start the church and trying to raise a family and trying to take care of aged mom and dad. And sometimes it just felt really stretched. And I was really looking forward to the day that the church would grow enough that may, maybe there was enough tithes and offerings to come in. I could make $1.75 an hour again. God has been so gracious and benevolent to this church. And I praise his holy name for it. He is a, a good God. He's taken care of us every step of the way from when we birthed this church 33 years ago. This is the only church I will ever pastor. Know this, dear, dear friends. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not climbing some ladder, corporate ladder, to get head in a denomination. I'm the only pastor this church has ever had. I'll be the pastor that dies in this church. I'm not going anywhere. So I'll be here for you. How about you be here for me? We're all in this together. Amen? That's what family's about. And I love that. I cherish that with all of my heart. I do. I love you more than, than, than you will ever know this side of glory. And I thank God for every single one of you. I have the best congregation in all of Colorado Springs. I am no hireling. I am no hireling. Oh, bless you. I, it's my privilege, my privilege to, to just tell you how much God loves you, how much He wants you to know He's got this in, in control. Whatever you're facing today, he's got you right there. You don't need a psychiatrist. You don't need psychotropic drugs. You don't need to get high to deal with life. You just need Jesus. You just need Jesus. I can't believe all of the different places people turn, you know. <laughs> I remember when I was doing my clinical rotations in my pre-med degree, uh, I had to do psychiatric rotations, which I hated amongst all of them. <laughs> You wind up with some real nutcases. <laughs> but I, in doing my psych rotations, uh, I talked to many psychiatrists and found them to be some very stressed out individuals. And one of them shared with me, he says, the highest rate of suicide amongst all of the AMA board certified specialties amongst doctors is in psychiatrists. Psychiatrists have the highest suicide rates. They got into it because they wanted to help people. Then they ultimately, the all, they realized all I can do is push drugs on people, maybe help them over a crisis. But they knew that they ultimately, ultimately did not have the answers. They needed a higher power. Some of them were Christians, and they would point people towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But the vast majority of them would not. And sometimes they would bear the burdens of their patients to such an extent that they would kill themselves. And you think, what a heartbreak that is. I think that mankind bears a burden that was meant for God's shoulders. Maybe you bear a burden this morning that is meant for God's shoulders, and you find your burden heavy. That's just a reminder from God. wasn't your burden to bear in the first place. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. If you don't feel that this morning, that rest, that peace, that tranquility in here, understand it's available to you. James reminds us sometimes we have not because we ask not. So what I'd like you to do this morning, you do right where you are. Just close your eyes and bow your head and say, Jesus, I give you every burden. Say it out loud. Jesus, I give you every burden. <sighs> Praise the Lord. Now, you may have to do that 20 times a day. Depends on how many bricks you've allowed Satan to place in your backpack. But God means for you to travel light in this world. So every time Satan puts a brick in your backpack, oh, another burden, oh, another, another, you better start handing off those bricks and say, Jesus, that's your burden. Jesus, oh, there's another brick for you, Lord. Okay, take care of this. Not my, not my burden, not my responsibility. It's yours, Lord. I will be done. Travel light in this world. Emotionally unbaggaged. I don't even think that's a word, but it sounds good, doesn't it? Unbaggaged. I, you know, you don't... Have you noticed the Olympic running games? All of those guys that run at the speed of light, you know, you go, boy, those guys... Do you realize the fastest human on this planet has yet to achieve 25 miles an hour? I mean, a three-legged cheetah dying of old age can do faster than that. But we think, ooh, they Olympic gold, baby! We can't even do 25 miles an hour. Man at his best is puny. Puny. How many of those Olympic athletes have you seen run with big pieces of Samsonite luggage under each arm? Now, understand this. The Olympic rules do, they are allowed to run with baggage. Did you know that? They can run with baggage. 50 pounds here. 50, this won't make it past TSA. And then you go to the starting line. I can do this. I can do this. And then the gun goes off and you... You can't do anything or go anywhere. That's what we are as Christians that don't give our burdens to the Lord. You'll never be able to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for you in Christ Jesus. Let go of the baggage. Give it to God. Give it to God. Whatever it is, and things will come and go all of our lives. Travel light. Travel light. If you feel the burden, give it to God again. Give it to Him again. Give it to Him again. As often as you have to, keep doing that until you find the peace that passes all understanding, guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He loves you so much, so very, very much. He wants those burdens. He can, he can do things you can't even imagine. How does a pastor of a church avoid burnout? doing the same exact things I'm advocating you do. Read, pray, trust, hand off the burdens. I want to travel unbaggaged through the remainder of my journey in life. So not only are elders, verse 17, accorded honor within the church, but verse 18, from time to time, they actually get paid for it. For the Scripture says, quoting Deuteronomy here, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. It's doing the work, let him eat a little grain, okay? Now, Paul would say in writing to the Corinthian church, is God only concerned with oxen? 
Isn't he concerned with men that he has made in his own image as well? He says that in 1 Corinthians 9. It doesn't just apply to oxen. Here he's applying it to ministers within the body of Christ. The worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless be brought by two or three witnesses. So verse 18 says, if it's possible, you know, support your pastors. And, and this church does magnificently. But understand this too, there is nobody on staff in this church that is overpaid. Nobody. We all are at the average earning income of this church or below. You need to know that. There are many pastors in this town, especially of the bigger churches, that cannot say that. I know some personally that make well over $125,000 a year, while the average congregation is making half of that. I think that's wrong. I don't like to see that. Scripture says, don't muzzle the ox. Great, this oxen here is well fed. I, I eat plenty of grain. Worker deserves his wages. Yep, that's true. Where it's possible. Some small churches can't do that, and the pastor's bivocational. That's fine. Verse 19, do not entertain. This makes life easier on your, your leadership. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder in the church unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin, notice the word sin, are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. Don't accutain, entertain an accusation against them. Now, elders are often accused, but seldom of sin. Criticisms usually go more like this, and it comes off as slander and gossip, but it's okay if we're dealing in generalities, you know. Well, we point out minor issues. Well, did you see what the pastor wore today? It's not a sin unless he's wearing a thong. Give him a break, you know. His wardrobe may not be as extensive as yours. Give him a break, you know. He, he had holes in his shoes. Buy him a new pair of shoes for crying out loud. This ain't rocket science. Oh, pastor's too dogmatic. Well, so was Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody goes to the Father. That's pretty dogmatic, isn't it? But there are some things you can be dogmatic about. Oh, pastor says it's, it's always his way or the highway. It's a one-man show. He micromanages everything. He's a control freak. We tend to slander our pastors with such generalities because we can't point out specific sins. They just do things we don't like. Every pastor has a different personality, and you won't like them all, that's, that's for sure. But that doesn't give anybody the right to slander and gossip about them. It says, if an elder sins, that means you have to point to a chapter and verse somewhere in the Bible and say, you're in violation of this. If you can't do that, boy, you speak well of each other. Encourage, bless each other. Slanderous generalities don't serve anybody's purposes but Satan's. But people deal in generalities so they don't have to prove specifics. That's Satan's work. You don't want anything. Never, never listen to that. If an elder sins, however, it must be substantiated by two or three witnesses. That's in keeping with the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 19 as well. But since perjury is not prosecuted today, we tend to have little regard for the law if it isn't enforced. It becomes a mockery, and so we're easily given over to saying things that are half-truths or slander or gossip or even lies about things. Well, did you hear this about Pastor so-and-so? That's slander. That's gossip. 
we can't, we can't do that unless you have first-hand knowledge. You just don't go there. Speak the best of everybody. Assume the best of everybody. Until Trust everybody until they have given you a reason not to. But give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, everybody is, doesn't it say that love covers a multitude of sins? Well, then shouldn't we practice that in the body of Christ? We practice it in our marriages. Am I right? All the women in the room are going, yeah, man. <laughs> that bozo has sinned so often since I married him. <clears throat> Verse 20, the context is the discipline of elders, those who sin. And the verb there is interesting, those who choose to continuously continue to sin. It's a participle. It's an ongoing action, the present active voice in intense. They are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. I charge you then in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels, the chosen angels, the good guys versus the bad guys, bad angels we call demons, they're fallen angels. I, in the sight of God, Jesus Christ, and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Don't let one guy slide while you bust another guy's chops just because of personal favoritism. And he goes on to say, Timothy, don't be in the hasty in laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others, but keep yourselves pure. In other words, Paul is speaking of the ordination of an elder which should not be done until there's been sufficient time for that candidate to prove himself. You don't want to call somebody a deacon, a servant, unless they've been serving. So have you had time to explore this pastoral candidate, this elder that you're thinking about bringing on, on the church board? Has there been sufficient time to let the candidate prove himself? And... Because their wives' qualifications were listed in chapter 3, any pastoral candidate needs to have his wife considered as well because she can disqualify him from the ministry as an elder. Does she have a spiritual walk? Does she love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is she supportive of her husband's calling? Is she submitted to her husband's spiritual headship? Are the older women in the church teaching the younger women to love their husbands? I mean, behind every good man is a good woman. And so in the church, I want my elders to have their houses in order. I want them to have the support of their wives. So Timothy says, don't lay hands on guys too quick. Let them be tested first. Take a look at them. Take a look at their wives because you're kind of getting two for one. Don't share in the sins of others who hastily ordain unworthy candidates, but keep yourself pure, refusing to be involved in the ordination of an unworthy man. That's the context. Verse 23 will cause some of you conniptions. I'm just giving you a heads up. Read it for yourself first. I'll give you a second. Verse 23. <clears throat> Did you read verse 23? Say, I'm there. You there? Did you read it? You didn't bring your Bible? Now there's a sin you need to confess. We've got Bibles on both sides of the church. Feel free to grab one. You take it home. I'll even autograph it for you if you like. 
But verse 23 says something that has become a real point of contention in the church today, and it shouldn't. Stop drinking water only, Timothy, and use a little wine for your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Apparently, young Timothy had a, a tender stomach. You know, at my house, it's, I, I can appreciate this. I'm the only person living at my house that does not have irritable bowel syndrome. I can eat anything. I can eat weak old pizza with fur on it. It doesn't bother me in the least. I can drink juice out of the can of Vienna wieners. I am a man's man. I can eat all things at all times in all places and feel good about it, with the exception of fruitcake and rhubarb. Can't eat those. Does ugly things to me either case. I eat everything else that doesn't bother me, but my poor wife, she's got such a tender tummy, and now my son Luke, my son Don... Uh, they struggle with things, and I, I feel terrible for them sometimes. Oh, we went to this restaurant. Oh, it really upset my stomach, and I'm thinking to myself, I thought it was terrific. In fact, can I have yours? <laughs> That's my ministry. I'm just trying to help them out. But in the first century, wine was taken not to get drunk, but primarily wine was to make the water drinkable. Water, especially in, in Israel itself, percolates up through limestone, and it tastes like limestone. And so historically, uh, they, would, they would mix uh, wine. They didn't have distilling. Uh, that wasn't even invented until it was invented by the Arabs uh, about the 8th century A.D. So they could only make wine in the 5 to 8% alcohol by volume range. And then they water it down with two, two or three parts water to that wine. And so to get drunk, you'd have to drink like a 55-gallon mix of this stuff. So, but it was an anesthetic for the stomach. It wasn't grape juice. That's a different word. This is an alcoholic beverage. People say, oh, no, he's talking about grape juice there. Oh, I'm sorry. If you know Greek, it is the word oinos, which means my definition, alcoholic fermented beverage. There is a Greek word, glucos, which refers to unfermented grape juice. And that word is not found in the New Testament. Did you know that? So when Jesus celebrated communion, we got to deal with this. It was an alcoholic beverage that was probably well watered down. But the water, if you've ever been to Israel and just drink water that comes out of the ground, oh, it is horrid. So it reminds me of the, the East Texas water. Sometimes in my grandparents' uh, place, they had a well in the front yard in this little town uh, uh, that they lived in in East Texas many, many wounds ago. And sometimes when the water w table would drop, uh, you'd, you'd be dragging some mud out of the bottom. And I remember one time I was told to fetch a pail of water, and I pulled up a bucket, and it had not only mud in the bottom, but a frog in it. <clears throat> There's not enough wine in the whole world to pollute, to dilute that down, to make that water drinkable. But you can imagine that that's kind of what they had to put up with then. And wine is, because it's a central nervous system depressant, tends to quiet the stomach down when taken in moderate amounts. So Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. I know that drinking of alcoholic beverages today is greatly abused in society. I know it is, and I hate it. Drunkenness is condemned throughout Scripture, New and Old Testament alike. However, abstinence is not forced upon the Christian community. Biblically. Moderation in all things, to be sure. So to be safe, never drink more than a drink of anything in an hour. 
Let's safeguard, because if you start drinking more than that, not only will you get a DUI, but you start acting stupid. You start saying things that you wouldn't have said unless you were under the influence of alcohol. And that's why Paul equates the use of alcohol with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the reason that he equates the two is under the control of alcohol, you say and do things you wouldn't do otherwise. And under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, you do and say things that you would not otherwise. That's why, that's why the command is there. Be filled, be continuously filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Then your face will look like you got God in your life. Then your actions will demonstrate you got God in your life. That's why we, the one is parried against the other. We don't ever get drunk with wine wherein is excess. That is absolutely forbidden. But I can't go beyond what Scripture says. Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine because you got a, you got a tender tummy. I understand that. So anesthetize when, you, when that ulcer starts bothering you. Take, and, and if a little wine watered down will help make that feel better. This is before Alka-Seltzer. I mean, it's not like they had Tums in the first century. He goes on to say as he wraps up this passage, verse 24, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. What he says is some sins are very public and you get to see them. It reminds me of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, which are pretty obvious. And that's what he says. The acts of the flesh, the sinful nature, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who continuously continue to live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those sins are very obvious. But there are other sins like political graft or corruption or things like that or, or secret sins or, or Bernie Madoff's making his billions of dollars shamming people on, on the stock exchange. There are other sins that catch up to them later but they will catch up to them. All of our sins will be paid for one way or another by us or by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, advice about widows, elders, and, and what we've got next in, in chapter 6 is slavery. And I know that may cause you some issues again as well, but slavery has been a part of the human experience since nearly the very beginning. It didn't come into the human experience until after the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Evil and thus is born of sin. But sex trafficking and human trafficking, it's been around a long time. It is a plague, a bane on society that I absolutely hate. But feel free to read ahead into chapter 6 because it's the Word of God. All Scripture, it says, is God-breathed and is suitable for correction, reproof, training in righteousness. So read ahead. Read ahead. If you need a Bible reading this week and didn't know where to, to read, okay, First Timothy 6 would be a great place to begin. Any of those passages in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit, any of those things that we've talked about this morning about burdens, 